welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You know, I'm really dying to know if Gina Barreca ever sits around and does absolutely nothing. You can bet I'm going to ask her that question, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say she probably doesn't. We're going to find out soon enough. Here goes. Gina has written 10 books, edited 11 others. Her work has been translated into Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, German, Portuguese. Her latest, Fast Funny Women, is a collection of 75 nonfiction essays written by women ages 20 to 89 and include New Yorker staff cartoonist Liza Donnelly, filmmaker Fern Perlstein, both conversations with creative women guests, Pulitzer Prize winner Jane Smiley, Faye Weldon, commander of the British Empire, stand-up comics Lisa Landry and Leanne Lord. They share the most unnerving, challenging, and illuminating stories. Gina, whom Ms. Magazine deemed a feminist humor maven, has been featured on CNN, PBS, 2020, 48 Hours, The Today Show, NPR, Oprah, and was interviewed for the highly acclaimed American Masters series for its profile of Mae West. She was, by the way, one of the first women to graduate from Dartmouth and was also the first woman named alumni scholar by the school. And I mean, Gina, not Mae West. Gina received her Ph.D. from the City University of New York and has been awarded four honorary degrees. She's an honoree of the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame and is the only full time female academic who is a member of the Friars Club. That's going to do it for now. So, Gina, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Connecticut today. I am really excited to be talking to you. I am thrilled to be here. It was Fern Perlstein who said that we should get together. And it's clearly, you know, it's it's a match made in heaven. This is, this <laughs> yes, is. we found out we have a bunch of things in common. And I am a huge fan of uh, Fern's. I loved her documentary, The Last Laugh. So it's all very good. Yeah, absolutely. To answer your original question uh, that you asked about, do I do nothing? I do nothing so much. I love napping. Napping is one of my favorite things. Well, napping's important. Napping is really important and there's an art to it. I've learned to nap. I'm 64 and I always want to give people, you know, I'm 64 years old. I weigh 155 pounds. I have hair that's somewhere between Elvira, Queen of the Night and Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> it's that black and white thing going on. And I looked like every generic little Italian woman that who raised me in Brooklyn, New York, which you can still hear in my voice. Uh, I have you know, lived in Connecticut for 34 years and I lived in England for five years. And, you know, people go to England for two weeks and they come back talking as if, oh, yes, well, we took the lift to our flat and a neighbor's marmalade cat would come by. It's like, yeah, yeah, I lived there for five years. I still talk like this. So things don't exactly rub off on me, but it's so nice to nap. And I started when I was in my mid fifties. It's like how other people talk about like playing tennis. I started napping in my mid fifties. I realized I had a talent for it. I look forward to it a couple of times a week. It's, it's great. So doing nothing is really important. All right. Then I stand corrected and there ain't anything wrong with that. <laughs> so take us on your journey did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? And did you fulfill that fantasy? Did I know what I wanted to be when I grew up? I, I just, I wanted not to get pregnant in high school. That was the main goal. Um, <laughs> it was, and and believe me, in my own neighborhood, that was that easy to do. It was, you could just sit on a park bench and, you know, be expecting three months later. 
I grew up originally on Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, at one of the contributors to Fast Funny Women, which again, uh, just came out this spring from Woodhall Press, is my next door neighbor from Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, who is a couple of years older than I am, although she looks better than I do, um, which is Judy, uh, I knew her as Judy Blum. Now, Judy Blum was the girl, the woman on the street. We didn't say woman then. It was like a dirty word. The girl on the street who actually went to college. But she was the dentist's daughter. So she was like the fanciest one on the block, Judy Blum. Judy Blum, so Murray and Ethel Blum's daughter, Dr. Blum, as we all called him, including his wife and his mother would refer to him as Dr. Blum. Dr. Blum would like lunch now. And Murray Blum was one of the funniest people in the world. So his daughter, unsurprisingly, also is known as one of the funniest women in the world. She is known to most people as Judge Judy. She's Judy Shiland. So she was my next door neighbor. I did so not make the connection that she is Judge Judy. Interesting. She is, she okay. is Judge Judy. And when the two of us get together, it's like maybe once or twice a year, you put us for more than 15 minutes, we sound like the same person. We have the same accent, the same cadence to the voice. We go, no, that's not how it happened. Your uncle did not have a Cadillac. He used to rent that Cadillac. He did not own that. No, my uncle did. I mean, we we sound like the fishwives we were actually raised to be, even though she was Dr. Blum's daughter. But she put, you know, she put an essay in the book. Now, Judy is one of the few essays that's been reprinted elsewhere. People like Fern, Liza Donnelly, Mimi Pond, who did the cover, who's also the New Yorker cartoonist, who did a book. I don't know if you know her stuff, Sandy. She did a best-selling graphic novel called Over Easy about her time being a waitress in Berkeley in the late 60s. You've seen her cartoons all over the New Yorker. She's doing a new graphic book about the Mitford sisters. So she's all about women and creativity. She's actually, um, she's amazing. So she did the cover, but all of these amazing women, Faye Weldon, who wrote Life and Loves of a She-Devil, who uh, wrote the original series for Upstairs, Downstairs. She created the characters for Upstairs, Downstairs, for like the original Masterpiece Theater. And uh, they all wrote original pieces for the book. You kind of found your own voice in spite of how you grew up? Is that sort of what you're inferring here? Yeah, let's put it that way. Yes, my mother was French-Canadian. She married my father with barely being able to speak English. She she worked as a long-distance telephone operator. Uh, neither of my parents finished high school. They left in eighth grade because they were called working papers for a reason. My mom and my dad met on a beach. And after the war, my father had been uh, on a Liberator bomber. At the end of the war, flew 39 missions as a radio man. And my father never talked about the war until the end of his life. My mother died when I was very young. And so I was sort of raised by those little Italian aunts. And there were thousands of them. We had an immediate family of like 117. We lived in one of those three-story houses that are on the outskirts of every city where you have like great-great-grandma in the attic. And she's only brought down like on a feast day, you know, so now she'd be at the casino because that's elder care in America. But, um, you know, she'd have a person next to her going, I'm playing that machine, too. (laughs) But then she was only brought down on very special occasions. So, no, women did not get an education because you were supposed to get you're supposed to sit on that park bench, get pregnant, get married. Nobody went to school. if You were a girl or a boy, frankly. And because that was not our destiny. We were a real working class family. and You were supposed to go to work. Then we moved to Long Island. 
And like the big, you know, the caravan that left Brooklyn for New Jersey. I mean, it was really, we had everything but wagon trains to leave Brooklyn. When I graduated from college in 1979 and my friends from Dartmouth who grew up in these rural areas or, you know, in fancy places in Virginia, whatever. And they're like, oh, we're moving to Brooklyn. And I'm like, wait, I can't move to Brooklyn because I'm going to see my family members <laughs> at the wet market. So, you know, Brooklyn does not hold for me the promise and, you know, young people are still moving there. It's like, yeah, no, I, it's go, go to Brooklyn. Enjoy, go get nice tomatoes. Me, I'm not going. <laughs> so maybe your parents didn't go to college. Mine didn't either. And you go to Dartmouth. And so obviously you were smart enough. You had a very strong sense of self. Again, that line, damn it, that is amazing about these women. You may not have been born with it, but it just grows and you went and not the end of the story, but maybe it's not a big deal to you. I don't know. Oh, no, it, oh, believe me, it was a big deal. It was like, again, my mother died when I was 16. And so my father drove me to Hanover, New Hampshire. We talked about the whitest place on earth that as a Sicilian, I was a racial group <laughs> you know, practically at Dartmouth in 1975. And in 1970, it was the third class of girls who matriculated. And it was actually one of my high school teachers at Motionside High School who had gone there for a year to play football and then, you know, left and, and went someplace else. But he said, Bereka, they're letting girls in. You should apply. Hmm. And hmm. I applied to three places. Like other people, now their kids go to like college counselors or, you know, whatever. I went to a psychic. <laughs> Whether I should, where I should apply to school. So I applied to Dartmouth because this guy told me I should. I applied to Queens College because there was an express bus from my house. That seemed great. And then I applied to McGill because my mother was French Canadian. Right, so those were the three places I applied. And uh, I ended up teaching at Queens College when I was a graduate student. And uh, then my eldest stepson and my niece went to McGill. So I feel like there was a connection with all of these schools one way or the other. But no, I had no idea. So my, my father drives me up in 1967 Buick Skylark. And we got up there in 1975. And these girls looked like, you know, the few other women that were there all looked like Gwyneth Paltrow and Grace Kelly. And on a good day in 1975, I looked like Janis Joplin. I hear you. No, I, yeah. I totally get it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're like from the planet Pepsi, these people. Yeah. And, you know, like you could read by their teeth. I mean, I have nice teeth, but their teeth like glowed in the dark. I was terrified. And my father, man, a few words, although well-chosen words. So my father looked at me and I think he could see the terror in my face. And he said something that I repeat to my students every semester. I've been teaching at UConn 34 years because it gave me such courage and I needed courage. I had some, but I didn't have all I needed. Who, who does? My father looked at me and said, hey, you don't like it here. You take the next bus home. End of story. That's it. You yeah. don't like, like they don't shame you to a radiator. Mm. You don't like it. You take the next bus home. No big deal. And that gave me freedom. I tell it to every student. I say, go try it. See if you like it. Go work for a year. I always try to persuade my students not to go straight to whatever graduate school, especially they've been good students. It's like, do something else. Mm -hmm. Go work in a, in a nursery, either with plants or with children. Go work behind a bar. Go work at an ice cream place. Go work at a supermarket. Go, you know, do city year. Go mm -hmm. teach someplace. You know, do something that you don't think you could do. And if, if you don't like it, you could take the next bus home. Right. And while that's really great advice, I think for me, 
personally, I did a lot of this negotiating on my own. I started at Ohio University and then it was, what the hell am I doing here? And I left after a year and I went to NYU. But my point is, maybe I didn't have such a strong sense of self, but for somebody who grew up where they weren't encouraging, you not only went to Dartmouth, but you got a doctorate. And so did you, at that point, did you know what you wanted to be? No, if you ask people that I knew from Oceanside High School, or from Merle Avenue Junior High School on Long Island, and you say, what was Gina Barreca like? They'd be making bail for me now. I mean, I'm serious. Now, our school, there were like 903 people in my graduating class from high school, right? Not unusual for these schools. I mean, it was like 3,000 yeah, sure. kids. Well, right? inner city schools, yeah, sure. But yeah, Cecil B. DeMille movie, you know, with <laughs> all the extras. And so when I talked to students who have, well, there are 60 people in my graduating class, I think there were 60 people in my gym class. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so we were divided up into like these tiers, into the honor students, the whatever and whatever. Now, I was in the honor classes when it came to like, you know, to English, to social studies, to whatever humanities things. I was in the vocational school classes when it came to math. I I can relate to that. I got to say, Sandy, I don't know what the effect was on you. For me, it gave me an enormous amount of perspective. I think it's made me a much better teacher because I know what it was like to try and to fail. A lot of people go into education have never failed as a student. I barely passed my regents. In math, I got like the lowest possible score so I didn't have to repeat, you know? That was it. And I was with girls. I remember the first time I was sitting in a class, I'd never seen this before. I think it was in 10th grade, that there were girls doing their nails during class. They had files out. And I was like, you can do this in school? The teacher is talking. I mean, I worship teachers. My parents worship teachers. They were like, you know, and these girls were like, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. You know, can you go on to somebody else? And I'm like, that's power. <laughs> you know, they weren't trying to please the teacher. And that was like a really interesting lesson. So for me, and my husband feels the same way. Michael, uh, who grew up in, in New Jersey and who comes from a very similar background and who uh, became a college professor and whose book on Thoreau was nominated, was jury nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and who did one of the most long standing and most respected textbooks on English literature um, in the country, the Bedford Introduction to Literature. Also, we talk about like what let us do this because we both, no one would have expected us to have careers like the ones we have ever that ever knew us. Michael failed civics at mm. Teaneck High School. He had to repeat it. That nobody had any expectations for us. So in a way, there was a freedom because we didn't have any expectations to live up to. So that also means that you could not necessarily reinvent yourself. Oh, but, absolutely. But if you could have a blank piece of paper that is Gina and you can put those paragraphs on it. I mean, that's very, very empowering. And I'm guessing, Gina, that that's what attracted you to all these other women. There was a tie that binds you all more than just the estrogen. That's a really interesting question, Sandy. And I know it's the focus of the work you do and one of the reasons that you are so important in the uh, community of creative women and why people recommend you. 
to, for everybody to listen to because that you get at the heart of this. And I think that the, the idea that you raise about jealousy or envy, that in any group, I would say, of creative people, but especially because women have been set up by the culture to see each other as competition, I'd love to talk more about that, that we have to go out of our way to create a sense of community. And within that sense of community, there could be competition. And there's nothing wrong with competition. Competition is healthy. The word, you know, your rival isn't your enemy. Rival comes right from the Latin word for sharing the same stream. You share the same as river. You share the same source. Mm-hmm. So your rival isn't necessarily your enemy. And your enemy isn't necessarily your rival. Your enemy is somebody who doesn't wish you well, who's not sharing the resource. They could just be somebody who's just throwing rocks at your head. It doesn't mean they're jealous of you. It just means they hate you. Somebody can envy what you've done or say, boy, I wish I could do that. Or I don't know how she does that. But it doesn't mean that they're, they're not wishing you well, even if they wish they could do what you do. I understand. And I think it's, Mm, it's a very interesting dynamic. I mean, I couldn't meet it out in terms of proportions. There were definitely other women that I've interviewed that have created this sense of self. I didn't necessarily, you could have a father, you are so beautiful. My parents didn't necessarily do that. And so sometimes you carry that baggage with you where you're just not sure of your own strengths. And life is complicated. Is that no, what I it is? Because it's the idea of being objectified you know, because of the body that you're in, right? Right. And that body, but I don't think that a lot of that objectification has anything to do with attractiveness. It it has to do with resentment. It has to do with dismissiveness. I mean, come on, Sandy, when you were 17, somebody made slurping noises at you on the street, right? Somebody went, right? I mean, you were wearing... Some kind of T-shirt where some asshole from a sorry, some guy from a car made noises at you from a car. Uh, okay, uh, right. I uh, bet. I bet that happens. I mean, but look, Gina, I don't know what I did ten minutes ago. So you know, 150 <laughs> years ago, when I was 17, I'm not going to be able to retrieve that. But okay, I get your point. I mean, but, I know where you're I going. Mean, it's those things. It has nothing to do with. I think it has very little to do with attractiveness. It has to do with the sense, like you said, of entitlement and vulnerability. But I also think that it has to do with the idea that somehow, you know, like you don't own the body that you're in. Like you're just inhabiting it. And you know, the whole difference between nice girls and good girls. And again, good. I had terrible part of my life a big part of my life and my self-image, I got to say, um, was shaped by the idea that I had terrible acne as a teenager. And now I think I look a lot better at 64 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than I looked between 14 and 24. Mm-hmm. All I saw, and one of the pieces, because I write for Psychology Today, I have a blog, that's got 7 million views, right? It was very nice. But that one of the ones that is, because you can rank them by the ones that are read most, and this one I wrote that was probably 12 years ago, but that's gotten many, many more views, hundreds of thousands of views. It's called Why I Hate My Face. Oh. And it's about the idea of really not looking in mirrors and not minding the flaws in my body. I mean, other people would go, you, you know, you, my aunts, for example, I had one aunt who actually saw me on Oprah and I said, so, you know, and Sally, she said, well, not for nothing, but the camera really does add 20 pounds. And I thought, <laughs> I'm the first Bereka ever to be on TV without like doing a perp walk. And, and this, this is your takeaway. 
And this is the first thing out of your mouth. It's like, you know, so family was not very judgmental, very basic, you know, all the rest of it. So I never felt, I mean, I spackled my face like it was spackling a wall, like I was doing drywall with, you know, cheap cover girl cosmetics that only make me break out more. And I mean, I couldn't look in mirrors. I hate it. I, you know, I had long, long curly hair that I kept over my face. I mean, that, you know, the Janice Joplin thing was for real. Like, I just wanted to hide and I could show off my body. That was fine. Um, not that it was by any means, again, you know, met Teen Vogue or Mademoiselle dimensions, but it was better than my face. And so that self-loathing, with so much of it. So I was one of those girls that I knew nobody was going to fall in love with from across the room. Mm-hmm. You know? There were those girls and I wasn't going to be one of them. And so I figured that I was going to be the one that somebody, some guy, because let's face it, it was going to be some guy. I was always cisgender, heteronormative, da, da, da. And always with real girlfriends, you know, but never had any erotic relationships with them. And so looking for boys and I wanted boys to think I was pretty. And I knew or I felt somehow that was never going to happen. And so I had to like get them in another way. And that's where the sense of humor came in because I could make them pay attention. And I think I got that from the family because with a huge family, the only reason they would listen to a girl is if I said something funny and I learned to be funny. Well, that's that's a great point because, and I can relate to that completely because my approach was, you may not notice me based on my looks, but you're gonna notice me based on my mouth. And not for nothing, Gina, I worked on the yearbook We were editors for the senior class and I won most talkative by a landslide. My school only had 225 kids in the graduating class. Bob Harris, whose brother is the actor, Ed Harris. Bob Harris came over to my house and we were, you know, counting up most likely to succeed votes, prettiest, all this stuff. And my parents were there and we were counting up most talkative and 126, four. 137, eight. And I remember, again, my father saying, this is what you won. So, I mean, that's my claim to fame. So I've always been in radio. And and as I always say, I have a face for radio. I want to move this conversation um, around to all of your kind of accomplishments here. How does somebody deliver your eulogy? Yeah, God, I look and I don't want a funeral. I really don't. I want to have a nice, I want to have parties now. I think that having a parent who dies young, my mother was 47 when she died. And I think that when I made it to 47, I felt like everything else was like, you can take the next bus home. Like everything after that was a party. And I've Mm. I've heard that from other people who's had, especially the parents of their own sex died at an early age, like, or somebody important in their lives, their mentor, their favorite aunt or whatever it was, that it's sort of like a switch. Like if you make it past that, you feel like everything else is gravy. And so I honestly think that there was a sense that somehow I had to get whatever I was going to get done. I had to get done fast. You know, the greatest thing that I can do is like, if I feel, and I I mean it when I say it in a talk that I give, I I like giving these talks in these groups. I miss it over this last year when you can only see somebody on the screen. But that, you know, if there's a day and, and Sandy, I, I, I bet you felt this way. I'd like to know where you can make somebody laugh, when you can connect with somebody with your voice, when you can get somebody to tell their story or where, you know, your story echoes with them, that that's a day you haven't wasted. That no matter what else you do that day, if then you go and you take a nap 
and you don't even take a shower. It's a day you've made good. Absolutely. There's no challenging that. I absolutely agree with you. But again, I'm holding your feet to the fire here. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, uh, Gina, in terms of where did the humor come from? Not you being funny. That's not necessarily what I mean. Where did this need, desire, interest? Because was that pretty much your focus? I knew I had a sense of humor because it would be, again, they would say that one has a mouth on her. I right. always thought such an interesting expression. I mean, just for, I, I didn't get most talkative. I didn't get most anything, but I didn't get most talkative. But um, the, you know, the she's got a mouth on her as if a woman wasn't supposed to have one, except for certain purposes. And it was either going to work out well or work out really poorly. When I was at college, that I would write funny papers because I knew I could get away with it. I would do parodies. I would write satires. And I had one teacher, a guy named Richard Scaldini for comparative literature. And we were reading Erasmus's In Praise of Folly. It's funny, I actually remembered the paper. And I said, let me do, I'll do like an update of Erasmus. And he said, you know what? I know you can do that. So why don't you do a scholarly paper? on this. And I said, I, I, don't know. I don't know. let me do the parody. And I said, what? He said, you trade on this being funny thing. He said, I think you're actually smart. And that was like that. We talk about feet to the fire. That's like, I was like, nah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm getting away. You didn't think it was an epiphany? I was terrified. And it wasn't until he said, and this shows, I mean, again, I'm being really honest here. Uh, he said, I know you would get an A on the parody paper. So I'll give you an A, but I want you to write the scholarly paper. So Whoa. don't worry about the grade. Just do your best. Wow. And that was the first like real research paper. I think I think it was a sophomore, like a spring sophomore. So I'd been there for three semesters and had not really, you know, taken the leap to trust myself that I could do something like a real student as opposed to like being the class clown or being, you know, a diversion. I could divert them away from the fact that I wasn't really smart. I just seemed smart and I could talk fast. And I did it. And it really was. It was the first time I talked about humor and how humor works. And I still, I, I'm sure I have it someplace because I kept it. I keep very little. So that was the trajectory that yeah. you had sort of not found your mission necessarily or your calling, but it, it was an epiphany at some it, level. No, it was, no, Sandy, it's a really interesting question because then I went on and I didn't plan to go to graduate school. The last thing I wanted to do was teach. Everybody said, I think it was probably, you know, you're in the same general crowd here. When women had a mouth, they said you should be the teacher, go to law school. I was totally not smart enough to go to law school. That's absolutely the case. But that's neither here nor there. The writing and the humor and the joie de vivre and the funkiness of your perspective all played a role in defining you then as well as now. Absolutely. I know other women have spoken about it with you on, on the the podcast. So much of it is that feeling like, oh God, I'm even blanking on the word that you're you're an imposter, an imposter, an imposter. You're a phony. Yeah, yeah. So I couldn't even think of the word imposter because it's so terrifying to me. That's a mm. real doc- calling, Doctor mm. Freud, emergency. That's really yeah. I couldn't think of the word imposter. So that it wasn't until I, I think I wrote that paper that I had an idea that maybe. But you know what happens when you're not. If you realize that you're not an imposter, then you actually have to do this stuff. 
then it becomes a responsibility. Then you're not just funny. Then you actually have to do the hard work. You have to do the heavy lifting. And right. so I didn't want to do this. I ended up going to get my PhD at CUNY, which was then on 42nd Street and next to the Grace Building on 42nd Street. It was um, the City University of New York Graduate Center. And you know, my family, we said I'd end up on 2nd Street, 42nd Street, and there I was. <laughs> but I started graduate school because I was teaching as an adjunct at Queens College and then working for NBC during the day doing like in-house writing. I mean, I was self-supporting. I needed to have a day job. But then somebody said, you know, I, I, you could teach at night. And I was like, okay. And I loved teaching. And then they said they weren't hiring adjuncts unless they were enrolled in graduate school. And I thought, oh, what the hell? I'll just enroll in graduate school. So that was not like some big calling. <laughs> but what did you teach? What did you teach? I was teaching I, because I got to Cambridge University. So I got a second BA, which is in effect an MA. At Cambridge, I won a fellowship after Dartmouth. I went to a woman's college because I needed a palate cleanser. And, uh, and Cambridge University is still vastly uh, more men than women anyway. And so I taught English. I taught English composition. And it was mostly to people who were, I taught at night, and they were mostly people older than I was. I was 24, 25. There were people in their 30s, people coming back to school, a lot of recent immigrants, recent folks who just arrived. They're on their way to cleaning jobs at Kennedy Airport. They were working at LaGuardia. There were people that I realized that I got up there and I said, I can't teach you anything about life. That's your job to teach me, but I can teach you how to write a sentence, a paragraph. I can teach you sentence structure. I can do punctuation. I can help you form an argument. I was so much looking forward to the two nights a week I was teaching and I would have to take the train out, you know, change and then take a bus to get to Queens College. And I still looked forward to being there after an eight hour job. And I thought, oh God, this is what I have to do. I have to do this teaching thing. And that's when I decided to really to throw my lot in and accept it. And then I did my dissertation on hate and humor in women's writing. And my advisors said, if there was humor in women's writing, somebody would have written about it before. <laughs> on some level, even though I'm not going to call it a struggle, but there was some kind of a, a naturalness or a flow, imposter syndrome notwithstanding, that Sometimes things are bigger than we are and that you're open to, but you weren't sure of. And so I'm guessing that when you started to do that, your focus became humor. Yeah, absolutely. And I realized that that was the parts. I mean, I liked the sort of sense of rage and the sense of or outrage and outrageousness that were in all of these books um, that I was looking at for everybody from the writers in the 17th century, you know, the, the Athabane and the women who were writing very early on were, or doing the prototypes for novels, then going into Jane Austen and George Eliot and Virginia Woolf and then getting up to, you know, Elizabeth Bowen and Muriel Spark and Faye Weldon, who I really focused on. But I really did. I went for interviews, you know, for jobs in 1987 when I got my degree. I was just finishing and the MLA was in New York City. And I literally had interviews where these guys were sitting on beds because you would go into somebody's room. In those days, you would go into some, somebody's hotel room. It was mostly men, not all men. But you'd sit on one bed or in a chair and there'd be three guys or four guys sitting on beds. And they'd be like, how can you say there's humor in weathering heights? You know, it is the most melodramatic, sentimental. And I said, it starts with the narrator coming in and saying those are lovely kittens that you have next to you. And the woman who is giving the story 
says, those are dead rabbits. I said, you know, like, here, come on, you don't think that that's done for a reason. I mean, you don't think that that's actually there's a little something in that. And that little Catherine is a child. She's trying to keep a diary, but they won't give her papers. So she's writing in the margins of her Bible. You know, that's the only place she can tell her stories are in the spaces that are left by the original patriarchal text. Come on. What was their reaction when you, you well, they, they either like everybody else, they either thought that was hilarious and wanted to go out for drinks or they said, thank you. You'll hear from us uh, with our answers sometime soon. <laughs> so, the end. The end. Yeah. <laughs> so luckily, I mean, I took the job in Connecticut. I wanted to stay within. I kept my apartment on Lafayette Street, which was uh, right across from the public theater. And a little Wait, red- what job in Connecticut? The job at the University of Connecticut, where I've been teaching for 34 years. It was the first job I ever got. And I stayed here because I could go to New York. I mean, until I got tenure, I kept my apartment because it was mm-hmm. rent stabilized. I was not an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know? So that was, you know, the first thing that I did. So and, again, at the risk of seemingly that I'm deifying you, but yeah, so yeah. you charted your own course. So it was mostly like a natural act to go from one kind of a vent in a sense to another and to like, as I said in the introduction, to be a talking head for the American Masters series on May West and that to put together fast, funny women. And I don't mean to propel us to today, but why did you give birth to that? I really wanted to put the women who I think are some of the greatest writers, literally the greatest writers alive today. I just, I have no shame. I ask people this, it's like, what did your fairy godmothers give you? That's how I end each conversation with, if I was your fairy godmother, what would you ask of me? You know, I, I won't sue you for stealing that. But that's okay. <laughs> this is, I did this column, but it was like, what did they give you? Because I'm still, I figure like you got, you got what you got. Like it's already been handed out. I didn't know there was a second round. That's great. One of the gifts that I got, was that I'm not a perfectionist and I take rejection really well. Great. And it's one of the things that, again, I try to explain to my students, especially the creative writers, you're going to be in any creative industry, you know, which is almost an oxymoron creative industry. But I take, I take it very seriously because it's work. Mm. And if you were going to do something with your wits, you know, they say, what's your inspiration? I said, my inspiration is a deadline and a paycheck. Those are the two things that inspire me. Somebody, you know, I have to get something done within a certain window, within a certain framework. And I don't be like, oh, I have to wait until I feel like it. I do this like I'm doing piecework. Like my grandmother had to certain, you know, sew a certain number of buttonholes. It's like I got to get a certain number of words out. She didn't wait for inspiration because I had to be fooled. I don't wait for inspiration. I'm lucky not to have to do that. So I shamelessly you know, wrote to Marge Piercy, who has been a goddess, right? I mean, I can recite strong women. I can recite what's that smell in the kitchen. I can recite Marge Piercy's poems. I make my students read work. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has been to me an essential voice mm-hmm. growing up. And I wrote to her and I said, would you consider being contributing this book? She said, yes. I was like, I Marge Piercy is writing something for my book. She was the first woman you approached? She was the first one. I, I wrote to Marge Piercy, to Jane Smiley, Pulitzer Prize winner for A Thousand Acres, 
Faye Weldon, who is a friend and who is like my fairy godmother. She gave me away at my wedding to Michael. She came to the house. Mm -hmm. She arranged to come to New York because uh, she was writing for the New York Times about Anita Hill, which was the weekend we were getting married happened Mm -hmm. to me that weekend. And so, I mean, I wrote to those women and then I invited women who I knew were terrific writers, either former students of mine or emerging writers I had met at writers conferences or who'd sent me their work or women who I knew were from underrepresented groups who were going to have trouble getting their stories out there. And some of these emerging writers are in their 60s or 70s. Um, Hmm. You can emerge at any time. People find their voices at different times of their lives. But I knew that for the, I think for the new writers to be in the pages right next to the writers who were established and solid in Nicole Hollander, who is, again, one of my empresses, who started the Sylvia cartoons. Remember Sylvia? Mom, can I be a feminist and still like men? And she said, (laughs) sure. It's like you could be a vegetarian and still like fried chicken. (laughs) I'm not sure I understand what that means, but I love the line. But so Nicole Hollander, so all of these people, it was like, you know, the old story Stone Soup, where like everybody said, I can't make the children's book. It's like, I can't give you food. We don't have any food, but I could give you one radish. I can, then somebody gives you an onion. Then somebody gives you a bone. Then somebody gives you a carrot. And you put it all together and it becomes the rich sort of meal that feeds everybody. It nourishes everybody. And so the fact that these 75, I mean, I'm one of them. So the 74 other women, I asked Judy, and she's like, I'm not going to write something too. I'm too busy with taping. But here, I never let anybody have it. But take this thing that I wrote about my dad, because you knew him. So she's an Susan Shapiro, I mean, you know, Dawn Lundy Martin, who is now is a, is a named chair of uh, creative writing at the University of Pittsburgh and runs the Africana poetry and creative writing section, um, was the first one of the first students I taught at the University of Connecticut. And so she's always said that, you know, having me as one of her first teachers made a difference in her life. She uh, wrote for the book. So, I mean, it's just been wonderful to have these different people all. I really see it as like a big party, like it's like a pajama party where all these broads are in one place and there's laughter. The All the essays are funny on one level or another, but there's also a lot of pain mm-hmm. here because mm-hmm. what we do, right, Sandy, what we do is we make a story out of everything. That's why you were most talkative, because we make a story out of everything. But what humor lets you do, and this is why I think what I've realized why humor is so important to me and one of the origins of this book and why it was so important to do during this last pandemic year. I mean, who knew? When I started this, this had not happened, but it made the year it was so important to do it right. this year. For so sure. For sure. Now. But that humor lets you get your money back for some terrible thing that happened to you. Humor is literally redemptive. It's like finding a pawn ticket in your pocket. And you think, oh, that terrible thing that happened to me. If I make a story out of it, I got something back. That's not just something that happened to me. That's my story. That's something that I hold and it's contained and I can tell it the way I want to. And I am not like the victim of circumstances, even if the word isn't victim, but it's not something that was done to me. It's a story I tell. And so you get that back. Well, you allow these women to own it. Um, Even though the women in here are writers, it's not that they need to be taught that, but that there's this kind of carte blanche perspective or attitude by that. I want to just divert for a second from Fast Funny Women to, as I mentioned also in the introduction, that you've written 10 books. What did you write about? 
Um, the first book was uh, The Difference Between Men and Women's Humor. The second book was called They Used to Call Me Snow White, But I Drifted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, women's Strategic Q-Series. So it's an old May West line. How can you go wrong with an old May West line? And that came out of my dissertation, actually. I was writing because I knew I needed to get tenure because I knew I needed to make a living. The making a living part has <laughs> always been a big part of life. And For sure. so I was writing the academic version of the book, which came out from Wayne State University Press, which I knew would, because I had a bunch of articles, would guarantee me tenure, more or less, as long as it was written with logical sentences in a logical order. And I edited a couple of volumes before that, even while I was at graduate school. I wanted a job. And I wanted to make sure my job was secure. So that was very much part of my own ambition. I wanted to have my mother never worked outside the home, as we say, and she would have to ask my father for every dollar she spent. And I wanted to make sure that I was never, ever going to be in that position in my life. So you were able, in a way, and I'm not being dismissive either, of calling your own shots, writing books and writing books about humor and being at a lectern in front of students were all natural acts for you. So how great is it to kind of look back over this and say, yeah, I'm sure you have regrets, whatever, but for the most part, you were able to navigate and be the captain of your ship. What a nice way to put it. I really, um, no, I realized, first of all, how privileged I am, how lucky I am. And I also understand how I respect my younger self who, I mean, I, I, the, the struggle wasn't as hard as other people struggle, but it was real for me. Um, and it had to do with the idea that somehow, you know, I'm always afraid to fail. I mean, I, I'm afraid this book will fail. I'm always terrified of failure. And again, like I've been through failure. Like I said, I'm good at it. You know, when I have students who say, did you ever start a book that you didn't finish? And I said, not only have I started to read books I didn't finish, I started to write books I didn't finish. It's <laughs> right. like, yeah, there are things that you realize, oh man, you know, I got divorced. I mean, there are things that you start that you go, nah, this is that, sorry. I'm, I'm not staying through the, the end. Uh, I'm leaving now. This is like a good time for me to go. Um, I'm, I'm exiting. This is my exit. This, this is where I'm getting off. But that's and, important also to know yeah. when it's time to go as yeah. opposed to, well, you know, let me, I'll stay a little bit longer. So again, you were able to do what you needed to do for you. The things that were in my way were um, mostly things that I could that I found a way to stand up to. Remember Alfred Kazin? He's a critic. He was an academic, a critic. He was in New York intellectual circle. Maybe it'll come to me. Yeah. 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 He -hmm. taught, there was a powerful guy at the Graduate Center, Mm -hmm. PhD. Not so much maybe a fan of women, except in the roles that he thought they should be in. Mm-hmm. So I got on the elevator with him. I think we were on, you know, the English bar was on the 18th floor or something. And, you know, next to ladies lingerie. And so I'm going on and I'm wearing a scarf from my college at Cambridge. I'm wearing an English scarf. And I get on. And then I suppose what he thought was supposed to be a playful manner. He said, you don't deserve to wear that scarf. You didn't go to college in England. And I said, I just came here from Newhall College, Cambridge University. And I said, then what the hell are you doing at the Graduate Center? And he got off the elevator. Oh, my God. And 
that like, I, again, because I always felt like an interloper, you know, I always felt like, you know, Tina Fey's line from Bossy Pants, that whenever she went into some fancy place, she always felt like people would think she was there to clean their aquarium. You know, I always felt like I was there to do the windows. I mean, I never felt like someone, I still don't feel like when I walk into a place and I'm the speaker in an event, I always feel like somebody's going to say, honey, can you just get me like a, Bring me a shrimp cocktail while you're up. And, I, you know, and if somebody does ask that, I go get some shrimp cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody asks me for that, I, right. I, I, I go and do it because I don't feel that sense of belonging. So it takes time. One of the reasons I remember giving a talk for some group and it was like some, I don't know, like a, a group of, of women attorneys. Again, women who have found their own voice, who have control over much of their own destinies and feeling like I was there to do the canapes, but I was their speaker for the evening. <laughs> and, um, and they were, you know, uh, they were great. And one of the women said, after the talk was done, she said, I think I know why you're a sought after speaker. And I said, okay, tell me, you know, I was hoping it was because I was funny or, you know, I kept them awake after three courses, you know, whatever. That's my job. And she said, you're convincing yourself of everything you're talking about in terms of women and life and finding your voice when you get up to speak. And I thought, you know, that's probably right. That I still, not only do I feel like other people need to hear it, but I am trying to convince myself every time I say it. Because like you can't hear it enough. It goes, it's like having a colander. It's like a sieve. Some part, a little bit of it stays. And maybe that's accrued over the years. But I think when I teach for the working class guys in my classes, it's the same thing, you know, women of color, people who are in you know, liminal states who are between things. Mm -hmm. They find a place in my classrooms, in my office, when I can go into my office. They're at home because it's all in a state. It's not like here are all the answers. It's like, okay, let's try to figure this out. And then I'm always trying to figure it out. But, you know, it's nice to see young people learning this stuff too and to see them trying to figure out where they're going to be. I get, I get a lot of energy from that. It's fun. You know, people are going to be really boring when they're 50 or really still interesting at 25. Gina, that's really a great way to end with that kind of <laughs> wonderful advice. Am I deifying you? I don't mean. I to. don't know. This is look, this is this is fine. Can I take you out to dinner? <laughs> this is well, really, that would we be challenging. This, can, we, can we do this once a week? <laughs> this is back. My my psychiatrist retired. I think I drove her to the end of her career. So I could. <laughs> this is now. What can I say to you to make you feel like you know to to show my gratitude for everything that you that you've done? No, 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 no. That's totally not necessary. I feel very honored and flattered that this match was made. And you know, again, I say to people, I'm living my dream life by you know. I was in the news business, radio news business, for a million years, and then the time to reinvent myself. And what have I done but meet? These absolutely fabulous, empowering adjectives are endless, and it so feeds my soul. And that applies to you in spades, Gina Barreca. Really, it does. So here's the story, woman. I'm always game for a part two. Absolutely. Are you kidding? This is fabulous, Sandy. I'm so excited. That would be, if you could grant me a wish, that would be my wish. 
Oh, come on. Come on. I don't know. Seriously. Come on, please. Can we do this? This was so much fun. Well, it was totally my pleasure. And yes, then the answer to that is yes. So Gina Barreca, thank you so much for sharing your life and your passions and just everything about you. We have come to praise Caesar for sure. Not to bury him, but yeah. this is thank you, thank you, Sandy. It's been a real pleasure. And I'm again now I'm gonna go take a nap. You made my day. <laughs> anything else? Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 